everyone. Welcome to a new show of One Vision. Joining us today is Alexandria Fisher, a Sustainable Finance Manager from the Global Risk Institute. Welcome to a new episode, Alexandria. Thank you so much for having me. This is wonderful. And before I forget, I need to give a shout out to our mutual friend, Matthew, for introducing us and connecting us and for getting us all to know a wider aspect of ESG and why we're doing what we're doing and why it's important. Um, so with that being said, Alexandra, can you tell us a little bit about your journey? And very, very curious, how do you end up doing what you're doing right now? So I've always been very interested in environmentalism. When I was younger, I thought I was going to be an outdoor education teacher or a camp counselor for life, um, which did not entirely materialize once I realized what the pay was for being a camp counselor. But I went to school and achieved a diploma, um, a bachelor's of environmental studies in one of the few environmental studies programs at the time. Um, Anything in the world from the University of Waterloo, and that kind of set me down the path. When I kind of first graduated, I attended COP15, uh, which was which was a bit of an eye-opening experience when I realized the lack of power that global institutions can have, which kind of turned me down towards the corporate social responsibility aspect which is interesting in itself because ESG really wasn't a thing at the time and no one was talking about it. It was all about corporate social responsibility. Um, and then about 2015, I magically ended up being approached by an institutional investor looking to expand their ESG, or more specifically start their ESG program. Um, and so I was the second hire um, at an institutional investor with about $100 billion asset under management um, to help design their program. And that's when I really fell in love with the space because I actually saw the capacity for ESG to make positive change. that and I think as we say the possibilities are endless we are just starting and that was why I asked you the question because I remember even like a few years ago right I I do hear a lot about we need to be more responsible socially responsible but there wasn't really any formal program per se the word ESG wasn't really talked about as much and definitely no metrics either it's almost like yeah we need to be better, but what does that mean, right? So that brings me to a recent report that you just published. And um, before I forget, I need to make sure that you tell our listeners where to get it, because I think it's an amazing read. Um, the report is titled, How to Distinguish the Good from Greenwashing, Greenwashing Risk in the Canadian Market and Medication Measures for Financial Institutions. For those who have not read the report, can you tell us a little bit more about it and why you started writing it? Absolutely. So it's on the Global Risk Institute uh, website, which is globalriskinstitute.org. And I started writing it as kind of in the pracademic space. Um, so it's actually kind of more of an instruction manual for institutional investors 
um, insurance companies and other people in the financial service industry how to uh, spot greenwashing and mitigate the risk. One thing I found talking to a lot of people is they thought to kind of greenwashing was more of like a black swan was something they couldn't spot whereas someone who came like me comes from the environmental field i can spot greenwashing a mile away because it's just one of those things like it has become so obvious to me and i quickly realized that other people don't have the same skills and so it talks about a lot of the issues in the canadian market um because people aren't intentionally greenwashing for the most part. It's more as it's more a matter of kind of perverse incentives and people trying to maximize power and uh, well maximize profit and not knowing how to do it properly. So what so one of the reasons it provides some instructions for financial institutions and steps they can take like due to better due diligence, hiring better ESG talent, um and kind of internal controls and even going as far as kind of talking about uh, technology and like AI that can be used to help spot greenwashing, as well as a tone from the top. And also kind of getting at the investor side, because there's very few kind of global standards, markets are starting to adopt standards themselves, but talking about what the investors and issuers can do themselves to stop greenwashing. And I would imagine this will become more and more important from multiple perspectives, right? Because consumers are more aware and they want to start voting with their wallets. Let's hope they do. And corporates, from their perspective, it's also risk management and also brand management, right? Because they don't want to be seen as associated intentionally with something that is not good for their branding. Um, so speaking of which you know if we if we look at the news for example right there's always lots of talks about how investors are trying to be better and smarter about what they're doing how companies are trying to be more responsible and and i want to cite a stat that i noticed recently there was a recent survey being done by the cfa institute uh -huh. it says 85 percent quite high of investment managers across countries uh, increasingly incorporating ESG criteria into investment decisions. Now, from a very high level perspective, it is optimistic that, yay, people are finally paying attention and they're more aware, but devil in the details. So can you break it down for us a little bit? What does that mean? And what are some of the challenges that we will face? Absolutely. So as you correctly mentioned, ESG integration is about using environmental, social, and governance performance data kind of in risk and return of your non-financial performance indicators. And it's integrate. And so under that broad umbrella, there is an infinite amount of ways you can do it. Uh, there's kind of general guidance, but you're supposed, you know, hypothetically, you're supposed to look at the material factors or like the ones that could most impact risk and return. Um, and then kind of integrate them in throughout the decision-making process. But one of the problems that we're seeing is most people who are saying ESG integration, that's kind of probably a little harsh, I say oh, many people who are saying they're doing ESG integration um, are doing it kind of as a checkbox exercise or saying they looked 
at the data um, and then not actually factoring it into uh, like the investment decision. And so it really doesn't matter how good your input is from an ESG perspective if you're, it's not actually being factored in like comprehensively into the investment decision. Um, and that's one of the things we're struggling with is trying to dis disaggregate who's actually doing good um, and who's kind of doing the checkbox. Because a lot of people who are critiquing the ESG space right now um, and saying it's a scam um, are people who are actually not applying the methodology um, appropriately. And so they're blaming ESG as an area as opposed to their own uh, lack of knowledge in the subject and rather than taking ownership for the outcomes they don't, the outcomes of the actual investment decisions. So do you think part of that challenge could be accountability? How do we hold them accountable that they're actually doing what they say they're going to be doing? It is actually very difficult. So because the average consumer doesn't have the time or energy, and even your average investor who works at an institutional like organization doesn't have the time to read the prospectus or talk to the asset manager to ask the questions. So things I did when I was in the, like on the institutional investor side was ask questions and interview um, the organizations as well as the companies um, and look into more specifically how the information is integrated. But what you're gonna see a lot is either something from like a thematic perspective, like we're green because um, we invest, we don't invest in oil and gas. And one of the problems is when you're taking a blanket approach to a lot of these strategies, they don't have the best outcome. And so when I'm thinking about ESG integration, I'm thinking it more from uh, a customized perspective. And so people who are just kind of taking generic information and applying it, it's not going to have the outcomes you want. Rather, you need to kind of develop your own customized investment thesis um, and work off and work off of that to actually produce the outcomes you want in terms of minimizing risk um, and maximizing or trying to find those value adds. So you, you, you mentioned something about, you know, overall, if we're green, then we're X. It reminds me of something I read, I think a couple of months ago now, not too long ago, that there are all these different rating agencies, right? And they all come up with, you know, the 100 companies of X, and they give some sort of score. But if you look at all of these different lists and scoring, it's like the wild, wild west. Mm -hmm. Some of the companies that are extremely questionable, they would score really high. And you wonder, wait a minute, what exactly are they measuring and what are the standards? So it feels like there are quite a few of these around from a data perspective, from how they rate, from, from anything, literally. There are no measurements that are the same. Would you think that's an opportunity that we can fix and change? And what more can we do? So yes, absolutely, it's an opportunity. So unlike probably a lot of other people in the finance space. I love complexity. I love ambiguity. Like I love uncertainty. Like so those things make me very, very excited. And it's, it's and that is a lot of the stuff that's present kind of in the ESG data and it's something I'm very comfortable dealing with. 
And so what I say is I'm bullish on ESG data, but bearish on the ratings. And so what I think, and also very few like people who are doing ESG well, actually look at, I call them headline scores or um, Matthew also calls them, and I call them clickbait ratings. Um, and so they're the, they're the top level ratings. And so those are the ones you're gonna see in, like those are the ones you're gonna see in like PR reports and you're gonna see those in um, like annual reports, but those aren't, it isn't really the data, that's not really information people are making decisions on because you need to drill down to the actual underlying data. And so the way I actually look at ESG ratings is more of a buy, a more of an analyst recommendation of buy, sell, hold based on customized methodology. So that is more of your starting place and a recommendation um, to develop your own thesis from. And so when I am doing ESG analysis, I export all the underlying, I export all the underlying line data from multiple data sets, um, and then I overlay it and put on, uh, and then run it through kind of my custom methodologies to develop like kind of the, to identify like the risk. So a lot of my work focuses right now on the risk aspect because I work for like a risk organization. But when people are getting upset about kind of these head, headline ratings, um, I think it just kind of demonstrates more of a fundamental misunderstanding of how these ratings are used, um, as well as kind of just kind of delegitimizing the, the market. And also, sorry, and also providing standardization is possibly the worst thing that could happen because there's going to be bias in any math methodology and there's no kind of universal truth in ESG because everyone frames it differently. And so if there is a standardiza standardization, it will not be 100% correct. And it kind of takes away that ability of the analysts to actually use the underlying data to do really good work. That is an interesting point. I, I didn't think about that because the the numbers person in me was like, well, you know, if you have all the same measurements the same, then it would have been easier. But you're right, though. I, I think devil in the details and it's way more complex than we would like to think it is. What about from a regulatory perspective or from a government perspective? Like, it, do you see governance in the horizon in terms of how different companies are measuring and reporting on their efforts? Yes, absolutely. This is something I'm very excited about because you're seeing um, more regulations come in globally from the internationally standards sustainability board and all and even on like the national level from the SEC um, in Canada has the Canadian Securities Administrator it's coming in with with ESG disclosure requirements um, right now a lot of it's focusing kind of focusing on the climate related financial risk because it is one of the most material short-term risks a lot of companies face and we need standardization to have comparability um, and people to allow people to actually do their jobs. Because one of the biggest problems we're seeing right now in the industry is uh, lack of standardization or people, a lot of people who are reporting are framing it in ways that make them look good or changing, um, are using different units of measurement. 
And one of the biggest sources of errors in the ESG space right now is actually unit conversion. Um, and it takes people a long time to like double check to make all the units are correct, which is not something people should be like spending their time on. It should be able to like, that should be a reliable thing by now. Um, and also when you're getting your ESG data sets, I think a lot of people would be surprised to find out how much of it is actually estimated as opposed to reported. Um, and so it's good that we're developing methodologies to be able to estimate non data from non-reporters, but you also have those inherent biases uh, within those estimations as well. And so the more data that we have and the more compatible it is, the better decision-making we can make. Do you think some regions are a little bit ahead than the others in terms of in terms of developing the methodology and the approach, or we are all like kind of starting and trying to figure our way out? There is definitely big regional variations. Uh, like so, the Euro European Union is much more ahead, um, and the SEC or the American Securities Commission is came out with a much more aggressive draft proposal than i assumed i was actually very excited when i saw it because a lot of people a lot of other jurisdictions follow the american lead and so seeing them set such like an aggressive agenda made me more optimistic for kind of like the global standardization there is organizations really actively trying to work on global standardization but it's hard when a lot of it is it is voluntary and a lot of times there's always loopholes. And sometimes I feel like we're playing whack-a-mole. So you create better regulation or guidance on how to disclose, and then people find another loophole around, around it. Um, and so I think the more clear and comparable data we can get between jurisdictions and the more regulatory clarity we can get without stifling actually innovation, like is going to be the one of the best things for the industry you're seeing that right now like kind of in canada because we are one of the fastest growing spaces uh we are the fastest growing space in terms of esg assets but we're seeing a lot of those inflows from places that are having uh weaker uh sorry having stronger regulations into canada where we have weaker and i'm, and I'm not saying those assets are greenwashed necessarily because i haven't examined them but in your in your gut, you kind of, you definitely feel that the transfer of assets is indicative of something more. It's a lot that you say without saying it. <laughs> Let's talk about um, supply chain for a second, because I remember a conversation I had with someone uh, one of our guests on, on the show last year that we talked about how one company is not by themselves, right? It doesn't matter if you're a large or small, even more so with the large companies, the big tech, if you will, there's up and down stream impact, but they are not always reporting the entire chain. So, you know, they, they could be discounting or somehow mm -hmm. forgetting to report about the upstream impact. So those companies that are supplying products and services to them are not included in the, um, in the reports that they, 
put out to investors, for example. Um, so how do we account for that cost, the, the totality of the cost to society and what companies do? Is that an impossible task? I wouldn't say impossible. I'd say very difficult. Um, I think it's something, an area that's been overlooked for so long that now we're starting to have these discussions. A lot of people kind of don't know where to start. Um, and I think one example is when you're looking at procurement budgets, uh, they are hundreds, if not thousands of times better, like bigger than corporate social responsibility budgets. So you're thinking about, okay, where can this change actually happen? In North America, one example we're seeing is something called emissions offshoring um, or emissions transferring. So scope three emissions are emissions throughout the entire supply chain. And there was a report that was recently released that people were very excited about because they saw emissions scope one and two, which is what the company directly produces, going down. So they're like, yeah, we're doing an awesome job. But what's actually happening was scope three emissions, so the emissions in their supply chain has increased rapidly because they're transferring um, like the more emissions intensive um, parts of their business to jurisdictions with lower climate change regulations. So overall emissions haven't actually um, declined. And so I think the best first step we're doing is putting a price on carbon. So having people pay actually, having the polluter pays principle, so people are actually responsible for the life cycle of their products and what they do. And you'll see it. And one interesting thing is also information kind of asymmetry. So an example is like Walmart has like a pretty aggressive um, supplier supply chain management program. And they have a lot of information, but that information is not disclosed, is not disclosed publicly. And so I find that that could be a lot of value to a lot of different organizations. And so it makes it difficult when you're dealing with information um, asymmetry, as well as it just takes a lot of time and effort for even individual investors or people outside the organization to figure out where this, what is actually in the supply chain and where and how it's actually working. Because a lot of these supply chains are very, very convoluted and I think are only increasing in complexity over time. So really what I like ideally want to happen is for companies to realize the benefits they're getting in, ter in terms of uh, like societal and societal benefits, as well as take control of the environmental and social risks they're putting, they're kind of putting out into the environment or the society. I, I wish that would be the case. And, you know, it's, we have similar discussions around DEI, right? And mm -hmm. how it is important to be a responsible company, not just because it's a check in the box exercise, um, not because, you know, it, it's, it's good for PR, but inherently it is good for the society when you are more inclusive of other people's thoughts. And there's crossover to ESG as well. But I, I still, yeah, go ahead. One thing I always say is you can't offset goodness. Like that is very there's, true. There's no, I, well, I kind of believe there's no such thing as objectively good or bad, but at the same time, having and a good, really good ESG, like a DEI program, does not offset the fact that you create, like, are one of the biggest plastic polluters in the world. And so you, and so you have, 
I would much rather a company kind of be average all around than be like horribly detrimental in one area or like have supply, have child labor in their supply chain, but have a really good recycling program in North America. I do wonder though, if sometimes the struggle is more not just a bias issue and a perception issue, but a short-termism, right? Because oftentimes executives are being rewarded for how I am doing this quarter mm-hmm. and how I'm doing next quarter. Not so much so from a long-term perspective, how is my role leading the company to creating more positive value for the society? A lot of these are more long-term. You need You need to put in the investment. For the infrastructure, you need to put an investment to create the best practices and all of those. I don't have a solution for it, but I do wish, you know, to share your 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 point that more companies will realize that it is important to do good. And in the end, you will do well while doing good. And I think that we're seeing this more from institutional investors, um, be with kind of the mandate for long-term risk adjusted returns i see the the like especially the pension funds in general having the push toward to make companies more responsible like over the long term because a lot of times when you're talking about like esg programs that will add value down the road might have a short-term trade-off um in terms of temporarily reducing profitability um which doesn't look specifically good in the books but might have like banning guns might but choosing not to sell guns or tobacco might temporarily decrease profits, but will might increase profitability. Like you see, I saw with Dick's Sporting Goods, like over the long term. And those are hard decisions to make and hard decisions to justify. You also see that to an extent to kind of a lot of the green products coming on the market around green bonds or sustainability link bonds, where the people who are actually setting them up as like the, or the CEO um, and putting the terms and conditions, they're not going to be around. Um, and so it's kind of, so the incentives within this area, you're right, are really misaligned and there isn't really a particularly good solution other than kind of the the investors with long-term interests or society in general, kind of taking a more active owner, active role in changing. So in light of that, what would you advise companies to do? Um, it's a hard question, right? Like you say, to to balance that. Um, and curious to hear your thoughts. What role do consumers play or can we play any role? The qu- the company question is definitely a lot more, e- it's definitely easier for me to answer than the consumer question. Uh, so I'm going to start with the cardboard and the consumer question. So I think, I'll, I think there's an overemphasis on personal responsibility um, in terms of creating problems to systemic issues. So it doesn't matter if you have a personal choice if you're choosing through two bad products. So one example um, is um, mixed recyclables. So in North America, you'll see like plastic boxes that have the little um, clear window. And because that contains often plastic and paper, it can't be recycled. And so people think it can, and a lot of that stuff just ends up in the garbage. Whereas that would be a very kind of, that would be a much easier 
solution from the corporation's perspective or like a government regulation to regulate that this item is responsible. So I think corporations also need to look at the role they play um, kind of from the systemic lens as well as from a risk management lens. Um, claiming ignorance or claiming you didn't know about something is no longer becoming a justifiable excuse. And so saying you didn't know you had child labor in your supply chain or you're sourcing from um, a disputed territory, that is no longer becoming an acceptable response. And I think there is a big shift happening in how people are addressing these ESG risks. And once they start to kind of get a better handle on the expectations from investors as well as society, um, I think we'll start to see, I think we'll start to see more changes, especially as companies are forced to bear the cost of the entire life cycle of their product. Um, that makes me, that makes me very excited because I like, I do, I am fairly, I am pro, like I am pro business and pro and pro growth. I think we just need to do a better job at kind of looking at the life cycle of these products and kind of decoupling them from the obvious harms they can create. It's an interesting state where we're in right now. I absolutely agree with you. They cannot claim ignorance anymore. It almost feels like a lot of challenges that we have in the technology space where there is no lack of data. There's no lack of data on what we can do and what we have done and what we can do more. I think the challenge more so is making sense of the data, finding the best strategy forward and rallying people around. Right. And Sorry, I get very excited. I get, I get very excited about the data. And it's a good thing. Yes, yes. Uh, so I've seen in the ESG space as well is like kind of my first ESG role. I did all this incredible modeling and it was completely disregarded because there was no institutional drive to consider it in, or not none, but there was less institutional drive to consider it in uh, decision-making. So one thing I've spent a lot of time on as a more quantitative person is tailoring my narrative to different demographics so they hear what I'm saying and be able to make change. I think a lot of times the different parts of the ecosystem, like the decision-makers or the policy-makers and the technical people aren't necessarily speaking the same language. So, so the changes aren't happening. I also think we're going to see a lot of change as kind of the current generation ages out of like kind of the leadership roles and the next generation kind of takes over because I think people who are older um, grew up in a complicated world um, and finance, I think, is a complicated subject. Um, but kind of that's like your A plus B equals C. And now we live in a complex world where there's tons of nonlinear change. And if you're not used to dealing with complexity, there's, it can be very paralyzing. Because I often think that people want perf a perfection or a silver bullet that doesn't exist. And so they're so afraid to act that no progress is actually made. Um, and so I think that's, why we need people who are willing to move the needle forward, even if it's not perfect, um, but also be willing to like put in the thing policies that need to be done. 
but that's a much larger converse and systemic problem I think a lot of company uh, countries are currently grappling with. Wow, I can dissect that in many different ways. Perfection indeed does not exist, but that doesn't mean that we cannot start doing something. That absolutely resonates. Um, thank you so much, Alexandra, for spending time with us. And before I forget, and once again, your report, your latest report is on globalriskinstitute.org. Correct. Awesome. And where can people find you if they want to follow you? Yes, I am on Twitter at Alexandria, like the library, um, Alexandria ESG. And also on LinkedIn, one of the few Alexandria Fishers. That is awesome. Thank you so much for spending time with us again. And for the rest of you, thank you for joining us for another episode of One Vision. We will talk to you all next week. 